You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway family. Happy one-year anniversary, y'all. Come on, it's one year. The God's faithfulness that we celebrate, man, just such a, a beautiful way to encapsulate this past year through that video. Just special thanks to Jeff McCorder, Ryan Chrisman, um, a number of other folks that contributed to shaping and making that video that just really, gosh, just so powerful to be reminded of really the, the road the Lord has taken us on. Not one that any of us chose for ourselves, but the Lord appointed for us, and He has been faithful throughout. It's been good to sing about that, and so just grateful to be on this journey with you all. Um, so we pivot here this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 is where we're going to be there, and while you're turning there, just a, real quick, I want to say just a couple of things up front about this election cycle we're in and a way for us as a church to navigate this. Um, this is an election cycle, I mean, unlike any I've seen in my life. Um, such a polarizing time, like the division is so heightened right now. If you're on social media, it is just off the chain. I mean, th- even this debate this past week was such a train wreck. It was just exemplified so much of what's broken right now. And even this in the recent weeks, it's just, I've literally had people that have written to me saying, when are you going to denounce Trump from stage? Because anybody that votes from him is not a Christian. And I've had other ones literally on the other side that have come in saying, when are you going to denounce Biden and the Democrats from stage? Because anybody that votes that way is not a Christian. And, uh, and so that's, that's what we're dealing with. That's how polarized this is. And uh, in such a divisive time that we're in, um, man, I think it's just real important that we just real quickly be reminded of our bearings, that first and foremost, while I know much is at stake in any election, um, we have got to remember, church, that we are citizens not of this earth, but citizens of heaven. We've got to remember that citizenship. When Peter wrote and said that we are aliens and strangers, uh, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians saying that we are ambassadors, it's indicating that this isn't our home. If you're politically homeless right now, I think you're exactly where you're supposed to be as a Christian. If, if you are not politically homeless, I mean, you may be reading the Scriptures off. And so I think it's just proof that we're in a, this is not our home. But at the same time, we want to see God's kingdom bear, its witness bear, even in this cycle. And so to do that, we, we need to definitely do a good job resourcing ourselves. And so this coming week in our next church email, I'm going to be putting out just a number of resources. None of them are perfect other than God's Word, um, but resources to help us think on, uh, on the various issues and, and the platforms that are at hand and how to navigate through those a little bit. And then I think thirdly along with that is we want to call our people to pray. That is what we should be doing in this time as believers in Christ on our knees praying, interceding, as Paul said, for kings, all those in authority, as well as for one another, for our communities, just praying. And so a couple of things with that. One, we have uh, put together, some of our team here has put together uh, a prayer guide for the next 31 days starting today that will take us right up into the election. And uh, there are 31 truths from the scriptures to remember in here. 31 prayers to pray as we navigate this together. And then I also, I want to, with this, you, we've got both online and uh, hard copy here. And so when you leave today, there is a hard copy waiting for you. We're going to ask you one per, per household, uh, but one waiting for you outside on the table there. Feel free to grab one of those. And then I'd encourage you, uh, join us. 
Join us tomorrow night for worship and prayer. We're going to gather outside here. We've got this deck that's being built. We're going to scatter in the parking lot, gather out there, and just call one another to pray. A number of issues that are bearing weight on us as a church and a community right now that we want to intercede for. And then we're going to get one more before the election. Um, November 2nd, the night before the election, we've got a worship and prayer that will be here as well. And we want to give time to those to really interceding. So take advantage of that and let's pray together. And then lastly, what I would just say is, y'all, as a church, can we just heed Paul's words in Galatians 5 when he said, every one of us have been given freedom in Christ. You've got freedom even in this democracy, in this election, to cast your conscience in your vote. But Paul says, do not use your freedom to bite and devour one another. Man, we have been called to preserve the unity of Jesus Christ in this church. And I know folks who are great, solid believers who are on one side of a political party and others who are faithful believers on another side, thinking through all the issues well. And yes, there are things that we need to stand and give voice to and condemn. We're going to condemn any form of white supremacy that may be put out there. We're going to condemn any version where a human being is um, dehumanized, whether it's a child in the life of their mother's womb or whether it's all the way to the tomb. Every aspect of life that God has given us is of equal and dignant worth that God has given us. And so we want to defend those and, and we want to give voice to those. But at the same time in doing so, y'all, we have got to preserve our unity. And we've got to be careful online and social media and in person to ensure that we are not biting and devouring one another's believers. So let's walk in grace with one another in this season. Amen? It's a lot to navigate, but join us in prayer here this uh, tomorrow night, especially I, I would plead with you. But there, I feel a little better. Put that out there. We'll have more discussion as we head forward. But in the meantime, let's see what God's Word has to bear on our lives here today. Romans chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Romans 4, last week we looked at arguably the, one of the most pinnacle passages in your entire Bible about how the salvation of God works. A salvation that brings about our justification, our being declared innocent, our being declared righteousness, a justification that comes by faith alone, through Christ alone, by His grace alone. This is beautiful. I mean, it is literally the beautiful picture of that diamond that we've been turning every facet every week and will continue to do so. But it is the diamond of the salvation of God. And uh, the fact that you and I have been saved by the grace of God, obtained by faith, faith that is a gift of salvation that God has given us through Jesus Christ and His blood payment for us on the cross that has propitiated the wrath, the justice of God. It has appeased it and has granted us peace through Jesus Christ. Now, that was last week. This week, Romans 4 is going to take that same concept of justification by faith, and now we're going to give proof to it. If you're a Jew that read last week's text, the Jew's going to be asking, okay, Paul, how can you show that that is true? You're arguing that salvation is by faith alone apart from works. Then you're going to have to go back to your Old Testament, Paul. You're going to have to go back to the Hebrew Bible, and you're going to have to show me that that's how it's been ever since. Because my understanding is that, man, it was by works, and then maybe now you're introducing this new concept of grace. You're going to have to go back and show me that it was actually grace by faith all along. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to do in chapter 4. If you, and it's been said, if you want to argue constitutional truth in America, you want to know what does the Constitution say, you're going to have to go all the way back to Jefferson and Washington to find out what was meant by what was said. 
And in the same way here with Romans 4, if you want to argue to a Jew what is true or not true about the salvation of God, you're going to have to go all the way back to the founding father, to the, to the forefather of the faith, which was Abraham himself. And it's interesting, Abraham, as a character in your Bible, is a real historical figure, he is claimed as the father by three major religions. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all claim Abraham. And they will all trace their roots back to promises that God made to him. And so if, if you're going to prove that salvation is indeed a gift of God that is received by faith, you're going to have to show me that that's exactly how it was with Abraham from the very beginning. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to look at three illustrations, all that come from chapter 4 of Romans, that are going to prove from your Old Testament that salvation is and has always been faith alone. Faith alone. You're going to see faith apart from works this week. Next week, we'll look at faith apart from ceremonial traditions. And then the week after that, we'll look at faith apart from Mosaic law. All of them point to the oneness of God and salvation by faith alone. And we see this through Abraham. So let's pick this up. Romans chapter 4. Look at verse 1 right out of the gate. You're going to see a question that the Apostle Paul once again is anticipating. When he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, first of all, you need to understand, most of our translations tend to make this verse read a little bit funny. As you read it, it sounds like the word flesh, at least in the ESV here, is modifying the word forefather. In other words, what? tell me about Abraham, who is our forefather according to the flesh. What did he find? And that can read true, but there's also much debate over what's modifying what. And I personally, I think the earliest versions of the NIV translation actually get it right when it says, what has Abraham, our forefather, found concerning the flesh? You see the difference there? Is it Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? He's our forefather because of the flesh? Or what has Abraham, our forefather, found concerning the argument of the flesh? Because that really is the context of this passage. The question that chapter 3, verse 27 was asking was what has Abraham found concerning someone who might think that they can be justified before a holy God by the works of their flesh? What's Abraham found about that? What has Abraham discovered? Would he agree with that statement? Would the forefather of the faith agree that you can be justified before God by your own works? What would he say? Because if verse 2 is true, you should see this all over the, New all over the Old Testament. Look at verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, then he would have something to boast about, just not before God. In other words, if, if Abraham believed that he was saved by his own works and not as a gift from God to be received by faith, then you should expect there to be examples all throughout your Old Testament of Abraham boasting about what he did to earn and merit the favor of God. Was well, that how the Old Testament reads? Paul says in verse 3, let's go to the Old Testament. What does the Scripture say? And here's his conclusion. Abraham believed God, 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that is a direct quote from Genesis 15.6. Genesis 15.6 and Genesis 15, if you remember, God really started Genesis 12. God chose a man named Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. That was the modern-day southern Iraq. There is a dude living there by the name of Abraham, and God picks him out of all the people on the earth, picks him out, pulls him out, and makes him a promise that one day he is going to bring a great nation of people from his old body, because he was an old man, and out of his wife's barren womb. He's going to create this whole nation of people. God, God took Abraham out at night, said, look up in the stars, man. Look how many stars there are. So shall your descendants be. I want you to feel the weight of that promise because when Abraham received that promise, he was in his mid-70s. You know any mid-70s folks that are just pumping out the kids right now? It's not too common. Mid-70s, and you are going to have children. And it's even more crazy because Abraham's wife, Sarah, who was also advanced in age, she had battled infertility her whole life. They didn't have any kids. And so you're telling me right now, at this age, after all these years, we're going to have children, and not just children, we're going to be able to, our children are going to be as numerous, our descendants from those children are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And you know what? Even later in Genesis 22, God promised Abraham that one of those children, one of those descendants, one of his seed would actually be one in whom the rest of those descendants, the whole nations of the earth, would be blessed. And Paul argues in Galatians unequivocally that one seed was Jesus Christ he was referring to. The Messiah that would come and bless the earth would be blessed in him. That's coming through you, Abraham. Now, if you and I heard that word, if God appeared to us today, and we were in our mid-70s, infertility the whole life, it says all, all of a sudden, this is what's going to happen. What would we say? I know what I'd say. I'd go, you crazy, God. Like, you crazy. I don't know what you've been drinking, but that is not going to happen. But yet, this is the God who makes the impossible possible. And he makes this promise. And notice what Abraham did according to Genesis 15, 6. He didn't do anything. He believed. He believed the promise that God was going to do what God said He was going to do. That one day He would have descendants that outnumber the stars. And out of that, a Messiah would come who would bring forth His righteousness. Abraham believed. And right then, upon belief, it was credited, it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, that word counted right there in verse 3, cited from Genesis 15.6, that can also be translated in some of your translations, reckoned or credited or imputed. It's a mathematical term. It's a bookkeeper's term. It's a banking term. It's one of the most significant terms in the entire book of Romans. And it literally means to take from one account and to place it or transfer it to another. Now, this happens, by the way, every single week in the Sumlin household. I've got five daughters. They all attend the same school there and my daughters they have an account set up at their school and that account is put there so that they can purchase lunch if they need it they can purchase school uniforms they can purchase um, spirit swag whatever they need it's in that account and I don't know about y'all the most amazing magical thing happens quite regularly is that that account dwindles it disappears it's fascinating how this works 
And what happens in that moment is when that account gets low, the school calls me and my wife. They don't call my daughters. They call me and my wife, and they ask if we can add some funds to that account. And you know what I do? I take my hard-earned, sweat-earned money by teaching y'all that I have got, and you know what I do? I take that money and I put it in their account. The bank subtracts it from my account and adds it to their account. Now question, did my daughters do anything to earn that money? I'm going to answer that for you. Not in the slightest. Not in the slightest did they do a dang thing to earn that money. But my works that I've earned, they are credited to their account as if they did them. And y'all, this is not just imaginary credits that are there. My daughters can actually take out real money and buy a real lunch with that as if they had earned it themselves. Like that, that is what imputation is. That's what crediting is in the Scriptures. It is judiciously and realistically taking from one person's account and applying it to another so that they can act upon it as if it's theirs. And that is how Abraham was justified, declared innocent before God. That is how righteousness was added to his account. God pointed to the stars, said, so shall your descendants be. The Messiah is coming through your line. And Abraham believed that out of the deadness of his own body and the deadness of his wife's womb, that God would bring a people and a lineage and a Messiah. Now, the object of Abraham's faith was undefined. He didn't know the name Jesus, but his faith was still in the person of God and the work of God from the promise of God. And he put his faith in it, and he was credited as righteousness. So point here, Abraham, the father of the faith, was not saved by being a good man. He was saved by putting his trust in a good God who would work on his behalf and provide a righteousness that was not his to earn. Paul, what he's going to do now is he's going to expound on that point by showing that what happened with Abraham was not just an anomaly in your Old Testament. It was setting forth the pattern for all who would come after him, including you and I. That salvation is by faith alone. You see this in verse 4. Paul says, Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but they are counted as what is his due. Is that true? Let me ask, for those of you who grab a paycheck every couple of weeks from your employer, does your employer put those payments, those paychecks into your account simply because they are so grateful for the human being that you are? That just by you living on this earth and breathing air, we want to graciously give you this check. Is that why that's there? No. You didn't get that paycheck because of grace. You got that paycheck because that's what you worked for. You earned it. So according to verse 4, what kind of person is not of Abraham? Answer, the one who's going to work for their salvation. If you are going to choose to work for your salvation like you work for your paycheck, then Abraham can't be your father. Your father is going to be, as Jesus said, the devil. That is who you will be identified with. However, in verse 5, 
Here's what it takes to be of Abraham. If you want to follow in the lineage of Abraham's faith, here's what you need to do. Three things that have to be in place in order to be saved by faith. You're going to see in verse 5. By the way, Haddon Robinson called this the finest single verse in the Bible on salvation by faith. Right here. To the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Now here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to underline three phrases there in that verse. First of all, underline the word ungodly. Then underline the phrase does not work. And then underline the phrase believes in Him. There are only three biblical requirements for you to be saved by faith. And they're right there in that verse. Number one, you got to be ungodly. Anybody not qualify for that one? If there's one person here who does not qualify as ungodly, I'd love to meet with you afterwards. Just find out about your life. But the truth is, Romans 3.23 said, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us are ungodly. Check. Second thing, though, is you can't work for your salvation. Your righteous works that you think are righteous aren't righteous. You can't work to try to earn the salvation of God. That's the second requirement. If you're going to come by works, your wage is going to be death. It can't be working for it. And the third thing you must do is you must believe. You must believe that God worked on your behalf. God worked in your place through Jesus Christ on the cross. Be ungodly, don't work for it, and believe in Jesus. That's what Paul says in verse 5. That is the contrast to verse 4. In verse 4, if you and I earn anything, it's what chapter 2 verse 8 said, the wrath, the indignation, um, and the death that comes from our rebellion towards God. Paul would say in verse 4, that is the wage that you and I earn by our works is death. But in verse 5, Paul says, if you want to be saved like Abraham, then number one, you have to recognize you're a sinner. Number two, quit pursuing the works of your flesh that you feel like you can do as a currency to earn God's favor. And instead, verse three, or the third thing, believe in, wor- in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. For y'all, this is so counterintuitive to our culture. Our entire culture in the West is built on legalism. That's all we know how to do is work. I mean, think about it. We earn our degrees. We earn our paychecks. We earn our successes in life. We earn respect. We earn time off from work. We earn our letter jackets in school. Some of us even believe we earned our spouses because we worked so hard in those early days to try to capture them. Like we earn, we earn, we earn, we earn. Everything that we do in the West is about earning. And so it goes without saying, since this is all we know how to do, that any natural man-made religion, you can expect to have a foundation of works at the bottom of it. This is true. It is always the telltale sign of any false religion or a cult. It will always have at its basis us earning, doing something to earn the favor and the merit of God. Why would, why would we do that? Because as humans, that's all we know how to do. And that's how you can tell what's false. Christianity, not so. It is the only faith the only faith in which salvation is not earned, it has been received. Which we do not work our way to God, but God descended and brought this 
righteousness to us, working on our behalf. He has bestowed this as a credit to our account that is only received by faith. Now in verse 6, Paul's going to say, all right, that was Abraham for just a moment. We'll return to Abraham. But old Abe, not enough for you? The father of faith, not enough in this equation? Let me bring in one more illustration. How about the one king in Israel that you epitomized more than any other king? Let's bring in old King David. What did David having to think about salvation by faith versus salvation by works. In verse 6, notice he says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. David's about to cite something that proves he knows salvation doesn't come by works. Now let me stop there before we read it. Why use David as an illustration? How is, what is the significant difference between Abraham and David that Paul might be trying to bring forth. I want to give you two of them. Number one, Abraham was saved before the law. Long before the Ten Commandments came was Abraham, and he was saved by faith. Then a Jew might go, ah, yeah, but once the law came, then it was by works after that, right? Well, no, David was saved after the law, and he too is going to argue that it's still by faith. So that's one difference, but a second one that's used in this context here is that Abraham is the one to whom righteousness was credited to his account. We've seen that. But David is going to be one to whom his sin was not credited to his account. We're about to see the two different sides of the same coin. Both of them had imputation. But Abraham's was an imputation of grace, while David's is an imputation of mercy. Grace is giving you something that you don't deserve, which in this case is righteousness. Mercy is withholding something that you do deserve, which in this case for David would have been wrath and condemnation for his sin against his adultery with Bathsheba. In verses 7-8, through This quote is taken directly from Psalm 32. Psalm 32, a text in which, remember, David had just sinned with Bathsheba and adultery, murdered her husband, and then he thought he got away with it. Nathan busts him, and he goes broken, and he confesses his sin in Psalm 51. Psalm 32 is David's response to having been forgiven of his sin. And so he is going to rejoice here in why he has been blessed. Not because he's done anything good and deserving, but because God did not credit his sin to him as he deserved. Listen to this in verse 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We have three new words here I want you to underline as opposed to what we did earlier. Underline the word forgiven, the word covered, and the phrase will not count. They're all three in the same vein. He will forgive me even though I don't deserve it. He will cover my sin. That's what we kind of saw the language of blood atonement last week and propitiation. It's covering of sin. But he says he will not count it against me. That word count that's used there is the same word we saw earlier of credit. Credit. 
But in David's case, it's the reverse of Abraham's. Just as God was gracious to give Abraham something he didn't earn, in the same way God was merciful not to give David something he did earn. Now, where did it go? It's not that, it's not that God just canceled David's sin and acted like it never existed, because that would, we saw last week that would be an unjust judge who would just let somebody off without paying the time. Now, what David is arguing is that his sin wasn't credited to him because it was credited somewhere else. Somebody else, just as I take my money and put it in my daughter's accounts, he's going to argue with David's account, there was a negative in there and somebody put it on somebody else. And we won't see this until later on, but there is a prophet by the name of Isaiah who comes along and would prophesy 700 years before Jesus how this would happen. How that not only David's sin, but all of our sin would be taken from us and credited to somebody else's account. Listen to these words from Isaiah 53. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's taking something from us. Speaking of the Messiah. Yet we esteemed Him as stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. That's who He was for us. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him, placing upon Him, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned, every one of us. That's Romans 3.23. We're all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinful and ungodly. We've all gone our own way. But listen to this. The Lord has laid upon Him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He took something from us and put it in Jesus' account so that He would then pay the penalty for us. We get credited with something Jesus earned, which was righteousness, and He gets credited with something we earned, which was sin and rebellion and the justice of God. Isn't that amazing? That again is the great exchange that happens on the cross of what Jesus has done. But understand, that only happens. It only gets received by faith, not by works. And so as we land the plane here, let me just articulate real quick. What do we mean by faith? A couple things we don't mean. One, we're not talking about cognitive intellectual assent. That's not faith. Just believing historical facts about somebody that they existed. I can believe that Abraham Lincoln was a real person who really existed as a president of our country. I can believe that. I've seen a couple old pictures. I have read about him. I've read from him. But you know what? I've never met him. I don't have a relationship with him, and I certainly am not expecting or trusting him for anything today. It is just a cognitive intellectual assent that he existed. That is not what we're talking about here. We are talking about a different kind of faith. At the same time, though, not only is it not cognitive intellectual sin, it's also not just an ignorant faith either. And we experience all kinds of ignorant faiths every, every, time, every week, every day, to some degree. Remember back in the day when you used to fly airplanes? We used to ride on airplanes in the old days. When you got on those airplanes, you, how many of y'all just took about 30 minutes to stop and go into the cockpit, sit down with the pilots and go, okay, let's talk about this. Have, can I see your degree? Can I see where you went to flight school? Can I make sure 
that you have enough hours under your belt to do this? You're qualified. Can you talk to me about all these instruments work? No, none of us have done that. We can't even get in the cockpit anymore, right? We go sit down and we just trust it's going to happen blindly and ignorantly. We don't know what's going on in there. We just assume it's all going to work out for the best. Same deal with prescription medicine or medicine in general. You're popping Tylenol or Advil or whatever behind the counters stuff you may have. Not only can you not read the, the uh, prescription, none of us can read it, so I know that much is true, uh, but not only that, we don't even know what chemicals we're inhaling and ingesting when we do that. We just are trusting the odds that this has worked out well enough to alleviate these symptoms. And in the same way, when it comes to having surgeries, anybody that's ever had any sort of brain surgery, you know, did you sit down and ask to watch videos of the doctor and his previous surgeries before he did it? Seeing that you actually can do this? No. Just knock me out and let me wake up, please. That's about it. These are blind, ignorant faiths. Faith nonetheless, but they're blind and they're ignorant. That's not what we're dealing with here. What Abraham and David are showing us is this is not cognitive faith. This is not, this is not ignorant faith. This is efficacious faith. And here's what I mean by that. This is a faith that is anchored upon the the fixed character and the sovereign power of the living God to do what He has promised to do. In which we enact a faith that takes real trust away from ourselves and places it into Him whom we have a communion and relationship with to do what He said He was going to do. And we transfer that trust to Him for our salvation. We've heard this illustration probably a number of times, but it goes back to Charles Blonde and the, the guy at Niagara Falls in 1859. Remember, he was tight, rock, tight walking across Niagara Falls. And he goes, how many of y'all think I can go across? And they're like, yeah, we believe you. And he goes, and then it's like, all right, now how many of y'all think that I can go across blindfolded? Yeah, we believe you can do it. He does it. And how many of y'all believe I can take a wheelbarrow across this rope across Niagara Falls? Oh, we know you can do it. How many of y'all are willing to get in? Silence. Because that's where our lack of faith, it just proves it was just cognitive. It was, it was just this emotional thing. It was this ignorant thing. But when it actually comes to putting my trust in, in this sense, faith isn't just thinking He can or hoping He can. It's getting in the can. It's actually placing myself in it. Receiving Christ's work on the cross for my salvation. Church, do you understand why this text is here? Verses 1-8, through Paul is teaching us through the lens of Abraham how it is we are to relate towards God. And so many of us, just like the readers of Paul's day, we have bad misconceptions about what it means to relate to God. So many of us have grown up thinking that our relationship with God is just a series of checkboxes. It's just a list. And it's seeing how many we can get right, how many merits we can put into this account that will outweigh the demerits by the end of this thing. And that's not how this plays out. So many of us, we treat God as our relationship as if we're just fulfilling a contract. That if, if He keeps His end of the bargain and I keep my end of the bargain, then this is all going to work out at the end as if we have something to do with this in here. There are others of us who just feel like, man, I have to guilt my way forward. I just got to martyr myself moving forward. I know God hates me. He's always mad at me. I'm such a failure. And if I can just kind of persevere and just grind it out to the end, then maybe I'll I'll make the list at the end. And that's not what God has set you free for. And nor is this some sort of relationship that comes through negotiating, of trying to argue with God about whose assets are in what account and who owns them. Listen, God is telling us here in, this ver- in these passages, this is the good news God is saying. 
is that I have worked on your behalf. So you don't have to work for this. Now, works will come from it. We're going to see that later. Works are a byproduct of our faith. They are not the prime product of our faith. And so this is not you working for God. This is trusting that God has already worked for you. And it frees you from the treadmill. It frees you from negotiating about whose assets are in this account. They're God's assets. He is the one who's credited him. Our job is to receive them and rest in them. And that is the good news, church. Amen? This is what we've been freed from. Take your trust. Transfer it from yourself to the living God. Now that is this week. This is what we walk away with with Abraham this week. Faith apart from works. Next week, we're going to talk about faith apart from ceremonial traditions. Does your baptism save you? Does your communion save you? For a Jew, does circumcision save you? Does your bar mitzvah save you? We're going to answer that next week when we look at the grace of God of faith apart from ceremonial tradition. Let's pray in the meantime and then we'll celebrate communion together. Our Father, we thank You. Thank You for the the lesson of Abraham. Thank You, God, that from the very beginning You set the foundation that this salvation was going to come by faith and not by works. God, thank You that He believed and it was credited to Him as righteousness. And for us, the same promise holds true just on this side of the cross that to those of us who would believe upon Jesus Christ and His sufficient work on the cross for us, that that has satisfied Your justice and has granted righteousness to our account, that we can believe upon that, receive that righteousness, and rest and now be transformed in the days to come. God, help us to hold fast to that truth, to cherish that truth for Your glory for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.